Paperman meets such interesting people. Welcome to the Media Project. It's a half hour of commentary and analysis on what's going on in the news media, an effort for us to try to tell the truth about the effort at truth-telling that we all do. I'm your host, Rex Smith of The Upstate American, formerly editor of the Times Union, with my colleagues, investigative journalist Rosemary Armeo, and my fellow former editors, Barbara Lombardo and Judy Patrick. Here we are in the studio. We're going to talk about sports and politics, folks, and maybe a little bit more. So we don't talk about sports very often, but let's just get started on that because there are a couple of things we ought to talk about. I don't know if any of you are fans of the Baltimore Orioles. I love Camden Yards myself. Oh, of course, you would be Rosemary. You're a former Mm -hmm. Baltimore person. But the Orioles got some bad press because they suspended their lead play-by-play man, a guy named Kevin Brown, because he told the truth. He just cited something that had been provided for him in the script. It was about how much better Baltimore was doing against Tampa Bay this season than they have been in the last two seasons. I don't know, some statistic. And he was suspended because supposedly it made him look bad. Here's the problem. These guys, these play-by-play guys, are paid by the organizations they're covering. What could possibly go wrong? Can I ask you a question about this? Hmm. Um, In reading up on that, unless there was a later story that I didn't catch, which is very possible, this was all speculation. It looks obvious. He says it. He's suspended. And yet no one has come out, not even him, right, to say why he was suspended So could there be something else and we're just all jabbering about something that didn't happen? I would just like to point out, by the way, that that's a good editor's question. That's exactly the kind of question that an editor asks a reporter. Maybe I'll be an editor someday. (laughs) As someone who was fired for something stupid once and everyone, the question always was, what else did you do? It's a torment also because I believed it because it happened to me. I think he annoyed the owner by saying, you know, they're okay now, they're good now, but boy, they were really bad in the past. That's basically how it was interpreted. But his job is not as really a journalist. He works for that company. He is a PR guy, and he is at their beck and call, so he doesn't really have a whole lot to complain about. That's true of all these play-by-play guys, right? Yeah, it's true, and so there's that, the fact that they're not a journalist, although I think the average viewer may think of them as journalists. When I looked at the original recording and said, this guy got suspended because of this, I listened and I'm waiting, I'm waiting, what on earth did he say to get him in this much trouble? And what he was doing was comparing the team for how well they were doing right now as opposed to a couple of years ago when they had a terrible record. And apparently this was all in the script. The owner of this franchise is notoriously thin-skinned. And it was wonderful. And one of the games that happened after that, the crowd started to chant, bring back Kevin, bring back. Mm-hmm. And it was a roar. So people are rallying to his defense. I like Barbara. You wonder what else was there. But... In watching the original clip, it seems like such a really nice guy doing play-by-play. I mean, these play-by-play <laughs> guys, I mean, I, I could never do it. It must be a real art. But he was just rattling off a bunch of statistics. He must have been really surprised by the suspension. Well, there's no rational reason for him to have been suspended. So you would think. Now, let me, since you've all walked into this and agreed, tut-tut, let me just point out something or ask something. As editors of community newspapers, We sort of have home fields that we're covering, right? We cover our communities. Have you ever cut your coverage? Have you ever paid attention to the way you cover things in your newspaper based upon the potential reaction in your community or in your publisher's suite? Um, I'm actually having, I'm having this very painful flashback toward the very end of my stay at the Saratogian. 
the newspaper had been purchased by Alden Capital, the evil fund, and Alden Capital was getting a lot of bad press around the country because of the terrible things they were doing in much larger newspapers. And there was an edict to the editors that you were not to publish anything having to do with criticism of the company without running it by the company. Mm-hmm. Ugh. So what about something any more subtle? So Have you ever been concerned about reflecting negatively on your community by your coverage? You know, there was an interesting term they used in the article about an unspoken self-censoring that happens in a newsroom. It makes you think two or three times about whether or not you should go forward with this story. But thankfully, usually in a newsroom, you've got that wise guy reporter or right. who's going to say, no, we have to charge ahead with this. In the old days, we had a lot of editors, a lot of reporters, and there was always that one person to step forth and push for the story to, to overcome any reluctance we would have for it. The sad thing is there aren't that many people in a newsroom, and so the likelihood of that happening um, has increased substantially. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's a sense of self-censoring. You know, I wrote a column for many, many years that appeared in the newspaper, and I, I expressed my point of view about things. These were my opinions, but I didn't express them as clearly and as directly as I now do on www.stateamerican.com because I felt that I was, you know, you have three constituencies when you're the editor of a paper, your staff, your community, and your enterprise that you work for. The enterprise you make the budget for, the community you report honestly and fairly, and the staff you need to leave thoughtfully. And, and you know, those are sometimes in conflict. So sometimes you really offend your publication. You cause people to cancel their subscriptions because of stuff that you cover. Sometimes I think there is a bit of self-censorship in that you try to reflect the truth of a community. Well, as Emily Dickinson wrote, tell all the truth, but tell it slant, uh, success in circuit lies. Right, if you, get a, if you get a big advertiser, for example, arrested or charged with something, you, you think to yourself, we really gotta make sure we, we get this right. Gotta get uh, it right. Gotta get it right, and I, I think we should have that thought about every single arrest that we report, but if it's a major advertiser, you do go to bed with a little bit of trepidation to make sure that you got it right. And yet there are times when you really take on powerful forces. In my case, we had a politician who tried to organize business boycotts, advertiser boycotts of the paper because of our coverage of that particular politician. And I accidentally stumbled upon a meeting that they were having in a closed little room at the Fort Orange Club <laughs> trying to get people to boycott us. And so you have to take on that kind of stuff. But I just think there's a sensibility sometimes to the nature of our coverage. Rosemary, you're being annoyingly I'm being very quiet, quiet because mm-hmm. I was always the rabble rouser. Those kinds of stories are the ones I always want to. I was the person in the newsroom who said, of course, we have to cover it. And I'm remembering one incident in Florida where we're covering a system principal who got into trouble for strip searching some minority students looking for a thief. Sounds like a story. Yep. It certainly was. I was the education editor, and she was a friend of one of the editors who called me and said, this, we cannot say this. I'm rejecting this lead. You cannot say she strip searched them. I said, okay. And the reporters said, oh, my God, we're being such a, we're being such I said, no, we're not. And I wrote down, sat down, and rewrote the lead into this. It was enormously long <laughs> about the principal insisted that the three students remove their blouses, turn up the straps of the bride, described exactly what she did because it was exactly. And they let that go on the copy desk, and the headline on it was, 
strip search because that's <laughs> what it was. <laughs> and I, I, ridiculous, it's not a Pulitzer Prize, but you know, I regarded that as like a, a badge of honor because you cannot get into trouble by telling the truth as a journalist and react by self-censoring. Why be a journalist then? Here, here. There you go. Here, here. Media at WAMC.org, folks, is how you can send us your thoughts on this. Media at WAMC.org. Have you seen, listeners, examples in your community, you think, of the press cutting its coverage to uh, not offend? I don't know. But the difficulty that you start with, which is just more significant in this world of sports coverage, is that all of the Major League Baseball teams now have their own hometown announcers. And while they are expected to tell the truth, while they're expected to give statistics that are accurate, because after all, baseball fans especially pay attention to these numbers and they, they will catch anybody who's not telling the truth. Still, I think there is a framing of the stories that takes the side of the hometown team. And you may not think that it's a big deal because it's just sports, folks. It's not politics. It's not democracy. But I think that it is a skewering of truth. And if you do that in sports, you're going to do it in other things. And by the way, speaking of sports, back to the issue of the New York Times getting rid of their sports team, right? Their sports coverage, their sports team. Yeah, getting rid of their sports staff and substituting coverage from the New York Times-owned digital publication, The Athletic. Maybe it's not a big deal because The Athletic does really great coverage, but there is one factor, which is The Athletic is not organized. The Times sports staff is represented by the uh, Newspaper Guild. Small little issue that was not covered in the initial announcement by The New York Times, speaking of telling the truth, the whole truth. And the difficulty is that when you have something like The Athletic, of course, this works for The New York Times, which is an international publication, which is still growing with more than 9.2 million or something like that uh, digital subscribers. But for most of us in across the country, local sports coverage is really important for communities. It's part of what stitches communities together. And when you see a decline in sports coverage, I think that it is a threat to your local press. You know, you talked about the skewing of a sports story depending on where it's coming from. We found this, uh, one of the things we try to work with um, local papers of sharing stories, that it's hard to share a sports story, a high school sports story, because every reporter will lead with how their hometown person did or how, how the hometown team did. Even photographers do that. They focus on their person. And so you can't really, it, it's hard to share those because, again, you get the bias of it that comes with that kind of coverage. You get coverage like that with, I think, in sports and with arts. I think that those reporters tend to be, you know, they're reporters, but they are advocating for their craft. They're promoting a play. They're promoting a player. They're promoting a game less so than the uh, hard news reporters. The uh, sports and the arts reporters out there may disagree with that, but I, I do think those are two areas in which the media tends to be advocates more so than basic government coverage. What happens if you bring in a reporter, say you hire a new arts writer who comes to you from a larger market? In this community, in the upstate New York, we sometimes get people who have had a great deal of experience in New York, the arts capital mm-hmm. of America. Aren't the standards of coverage different? Should we not expect that somebody who is reviewing say, well, the Albany Symphony would have a bit different standard than, than that same person reviewing the New York Philharmonic? 
Is that reasonable to expect? Oh, reviews are a great topic because, <laughs> because you know, the local theater company, the local orchestra, the local band, they're expecting a positive review, and, <laughs> and, and they get very upset if there's a negative review. Same holds true with restaurants. Right. But you have to keep in mind that we are sending reviewers out because people are paying to go to those events or paying for that restaurant meal, and they want our honest opinion. You hope. You think they want our honest opinion. But the owners, of course, and the people who are on the board and, and donors to these arts organizations want your honest opinion to be favorable. <laughs> and, it's, and it's tough on the smaller town levels because yeah. you are critiquing sports and arts events that are you know, not New York City caliber. We had a wonderful stringer in Baltimore, where I worked in the suburbs of Baltimore, who got her job as a stringer by writing in a letter to the editor and talking about why a review was so badly done. And they hired her. I worked with her for years. I loved her. And she covered everything. She was much in demand as a reviewer. And she would go and she would be very kind to these local productions. And she would point out what they were trying to do and what their effort was. But she also offered constructive criticism and everything. She thought that was part of her job. That's wonderful. Was to instruct them in how to become better so they could be, you know, the New York Symphony instead of the Albany Symphony. <laughs> I thought that was the model that, yes, you can be kind to them and you acknowledge effort, but you also point out deficiencies. I had a theater director early in my editorship who asked me to sit down and explain it to me how she thought that our critic was attacking her leadership, that is, her choices of what the theater was presenting as opposed to uh, reviewing the uh, plays themselves. And I think she had a point, actually. Yeah. I think it was probably right. It's a very difficult thing as an editor if you think that your critic is being harsh or unfair. Didn't you have an example, Rex, at the Times Union with uh, Jack's Oyster House? Oh. A new reviewer came in and panned it. This is like it's closed now. So, do you remember that whole incident and I how that was handled? It that quite that was well, that was good because Jax was more than a century old, and we and <laughs> it was not just the new critic uh, Susie Davidson Powell who is still writing for the Times Union, but also Steve Barnes, the established arts writer in this community, who felt the same way, and they went back four or five times yeah. to try to give every benefit of the doubt to Jax, which, by the way, got expensive. But uh, <laughs> they could not find a good meal coming out of Jax. And so we ended up really saying this is not appropriate. This is a, you know, a hundred-year-old institution that this has really failing. gone bad. And that's what, that's what you were saying before, that if you're going to attack a pillar in the community, you do it, but you're really, really careful. So two reviewers, multiple chances. And they were very good. Both of those people were. really know what they're yeah. doing, and, and so you could have that confidence. And, I, and I've seen reviews by Steve Barnes that have been highly critical of, say, the restaurant that he was writing about, but that he also in it was expressing some kind of regrets that, that it's usually I've, I've had wonderful meals here yes. the sort of the people are so nice who are running it, and that yeah. he finds uh, ways to try to balance it without pulling the punches of the things that were short. Or to try to explain what people can get here that might be decent. Susie does this, how you can, well, you know, if you if you don't <laughs> want to have the $70 steak, uh, which is not worth it, uh, you can have a small plate here and have a nice meal for uh, 30 bucks or something. So I think they try. I think critics, it sometimes is overstated that people like to read critical reviews. They do, but what they're really looking for is consumer information. 
I do think that that book reviews especially are problematic in most situations. Unless you're writing for the New York Times Book Review or something like that, usually (laughs) the people who write book reviews tend to be writers who are not themselves, I'm sorry, successful as as authors. Yeah. And so I tended to say, let's not do reviews. And the same thing with a lot of arts uh, efforts. Let's write previews. Let's write stories about the books as opposed to reviews of the books. And you're usually on safer ground then to not get somebody who doesn't really know what they're writing about uh, isn't going to do a good job. So Yeah, there was there was a time where we had people who were, I would say, not really expert caliber reviewing restaurants, much to my chagrin. So you feel bad about the type of um, stories that they're writing or reviews that they're, that they're writing. And we kind of finally came to a point where there were actually a married couple that were restaurant entrepreneurs that could have done it, but the company wasn't willing to pay them to eat a decent meal and have a decent meal. And they did not, and this was a change of hands, they did not want to run the risk of a bad review that was going to hurt advertisers. Ah. And look how and that, careful. And that was the end of that. Look how careful and ethical we are as print people. And instead, what it's been replaced with is Yelp and Google reviews. And any any jerk who's had a very singular but bad experience can now malign a, a restaurant, a performance, whatever. Hmm. We've not improved it by our ethics. And if I may, when Judy mentioned earlier about working for the small newspapers and trying to look for opportunities for them to share stories, so I would agree that a game story from one area or another is not going to be of interest, but the human interest stories are Mm -hmm. of great interest. And there would be times when I would enjoy reading the only sports I would read would be the feature stories in the New York Times that were really either Mm -hmm. human interest or holding accountable an organization or the people in it. But that's an opportunity where they could be, if they're staff, writing those types of stories that that would be shareable. It didn't matter where they're coming from. I'll tell you, early in my career, I was the editor of a little tiny newspaper in northwestern Indiana, and we covered three different school districts, and two of them had pretty good football teams. The hometown team was not so good. So the other two guys on the staff, there were three of us full-time, and the other two guys went off to cover the good teams, and I was left covering the hometown (laughs) team on a football game, which the hometown team lost 44 to nothing. When you're writing for the hometown team that loses a football game They're 44 consistent. to nothing, yeah, every first down gets its own paragraph, let me tell you. <laughs> yes. uh, you know, it was the city of Rensselaer, Indiana. Rensselaer threatened on its 45. Uh, anyway. <laughs> Ah, well, at sports media at WAMC.org. I'm Rex Smith here with Rosemary Armeo, Barbara Lombardo, and Judy Patrick. We are the Media Project this week. Okay, we promised you we're going to talk about politics. And so let's talk about Fox News coverage of politics. You know, we love to pick on Fox News for good reason because it lies. <laughs> the point in contention here has to do with the a witness named Devon Archer, the business partner of Hunter Biden, who testified before a House committee. Um, who repeatedly said that uh, Joe Biden had nothing to do with his son's business practices. Fox News interpreted it entirely differently and did a story about all the things that he had not said. It is absolutely inaccurate what Fox News did. I just don't know what to do about this. It's amazing. Friends of mine, well, friends, they're they're pro-Trumpers, and so they were very much delighted with this whole story. Devin Archer was going to blow it apart. They watched it, 
and they still repeat it the same way, just the same way that Fox did. And I'm saying, what are you talking about? He said he, he called up his son to talk about his brother's terminal cancer and talked about the weather when definitely Hunter just puts him on to talk to his friends and say, hi, this is Dad. Obviously, Hunter was trying to promote his father as someone who was in on it. There's not a sl- not anything, just the opposite. Devin said no. We didn't, he never talked about business. And still the friends, just like Fox, are saying, oh, see, the mainstream media isn't going to cover this. It just blew them out of the water. I don't get it either, Rex. Yeah, and I don't know what to do except to say to people, if you watch Fox, stop it. It's making you stupid. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right. I, Rosemary, I have the same friends. Yeah. And and yeah. there's no talking to no, them. No, no, no. They're just convinced that. And this is such a big issue. They are so focused on Hunter Biden and repeating the lies that... Fox repeats to them, there is no accountability. Joe Biden took $5 million from China. Okay, where'd the amount come from? Who in China? Where's the money now? Who told you this? But it's gospel. I don't get it. Propaganda works, folks. I guess that's what it is. We may note that uh, Fox has had a tremendous downturn in viewership in the key demographic, 25 to 40 uh, Eight? Is that what it is? 2549, I guess, is the key demographic. Uh, they're down something like 30 percent uh, from what they were before the 22 election. And Fox has had to pay hundreds of millions of dollars and will have to lay out clearly hundreds of millions more in these judgments for repeating Donald Trump's lies. But it seems that, that Rupert Murdoch thinks that there is more to be lost mm-hmm in being disloyal to Trump and to the lies that the Republican Party is now touting uh, than there is in uh, in trying to reverse that. I don't know. You know, early on, the, there was the thought that the average American is going to sympathize with Joe Biden, that he has a, a relative who had substance abuse, they had a death in the family with the, the loss of the bow, and that the average American will would sympathize. But I think Fox must have done some polling that shows that, you know, Hunter Biden, you know, you've got those, you know, got some sexy pictures of him. He did some bad things. He did a lot of bad things, and he, he's being held accountable for him. This is something they're going to ride, and they, they, maybe there's not much else they have at this yeah. point. Maybe this is just I mean, the diversion. economy is picking up. Uh, Trump is in trouble. There's really not a whole lot else that they can go. Crime is down. Right? Yeah, yeah. Santos Despite is in trouble. The crime there. Biden yes. family. <laughs> Santos or DeSantis. You know, you, you kind of get the names kind of confused there. Both evil, though. <laughs> <laughs> but now here's a question about uh, whether the uh, criminal trials, uh, the criminal cases involving Donald Trump, are going to make a difference. Data seems to suggest that viewers are tuning out the Trump scandals. Each one of the indictments, uh, Trump has now been indicted three times. Uh, Maybe by the time viewers hear this, there will be a fourth already coming surely. Uh, But each time there's been a spike in attention, but a lower spike than before. Same thing with Trump's donations, of course. Were we just inured to this? Boy, audiences are so fickle, aren't they? You got to amuse them every day with something new. I mean, this is why the January 6th hearing, the committee hearings were so important, because it was a live presentation. It, it speaks to the American public in a form where they can understand it. And that is why I think it's so important that these, the, any trials of the former president be televised. I know some people argue against it, but Americans need to trust the system. They need to trust whoever they're voting for for president. And the best way to guarantee that they trust them is to show it to them personally. I 100% agree with you. And and that follows on 
Rex's question of like what's to be done about people who will believe lies no matter no matter what and all sides are going to just dig into their the side that they believe the truth remember I think it was uh, Chico Marx who said who are you gonna believe me or your lying eyes yeah and the, the Devin the Devin Archer committee hearings were completely open and the transcript was then released and you still have Fox acting that way a, I don't think in a million years they're going to open that trial, any of the Trump trials, to cameras. The Washington Post says you'll be lucky if you get audio out of it. What about? And I'm not sure it would make a difference. What about the issue of the intimidation of witnesses and jurors? Should we, as the media, we usually press forward and demand an yep. open jury trial? Uh, we want the names and the visuals of witnesses. We want to know who those jurors are. Do you think the court is on solid ground in closing us out with that? I think there's real evidence in Trump's case that a witness's safety is in danger. You put their names and addresses on and all of his crazy followers are, are uh, hounding them on their doorstep. I, I think there's a real issue of safety in, in these cases. I'm all in favor of protecting the, uh, the identities of the jurors, but... For the witnesses, I think we all know all the witnesses, uh, yeah. and I think they're being that's intimidated true. already. Yes, uh, um, I think that's less of an issue, but definitely the jurors. You can televise. I, I agree with Rosemary. The, the likelihood of it being televised is very low. But if it is, you there's a way to do it. You just don't show the jury. And mm -hmm. I and the, people talk about the O.J. Simpson trial and how that kind of went off the rails. That went off the rails in large part because the judge didn't control it enough. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I think. That's and, true. It, and if you talk to people nowadays, I think people have a good idea of what hap what what justice was in that case. Yeah. Now you know that the judge in the January sixth trial, a federal judge in Washington, is seemingly being very tough on this stuff these days. She is seeming to trying to contain Donald Trump's comments. I think it's because of that fear of violence, and we see a very real. Uh, likelihood. We just had a case uh, the other day of the FBI actually killing someone who was apparently a threat to the president when they went to serve a, uh, a warrant on him out in Utah. And I wonder if you're the judge in that federal case uh, or if you're a prosecutor, <laughs> I'm sure they are protected right now more than they were they, before. You know, this. I think that if um, any other defendant than Donald Trump had behaved the way he had already, he'd be bound in contempt of court. That means jailing. How do you put Donald Trump into jail? Come after me, I come after you. That's a threat. That's contemptuous of a court that has told him, don't be mean to our witnesses, don't try to intimidate him. But to put him in jail, I, I, the trial is amazing because it's unlike any we have ever had in the country. This is, this is a trial not just of the century, as they like to say, but of all the centuries. It'll be amazing to see. All right, well, we'll talk about this a lot more in the months to come, I'm sure. And that's all we have time for this week. This has been The Media Project. That was Rosemary Armeo, investigative journalist, and my fellow former editors, uh, Barbara Lombardo and Judy Patrick. Actually, of course, Rosemary's a former editor, too. We just have... I'm just old. I've done it all. <laughs> well, we were a bunch of local yokels. <laughs> ah, there you go. All good. And we're grateful to our producer, David Gustina, for making this all happen, and to you folks for joining us once again this week, as we hope you will next week on The Media Project. Their policies and... The Media Project is a national production of WAMC, Northeast Public Radio. 
This week's projectors include Judy Patrick, former editor of the Daily Gazette and vice president for editorial development for the New York Press Association, Rosemary Armeo, investigative journalist and adjunct professor at the University at Albany, Barbara Lombardo, former editor of the Saratogian and adjunct professor at the University at Albany, and former Times Union editor and current Upstate American Substack columnist Rex Smith. You can listen to The Media Project anytime at wamcpodcasts.org or anywhere you get your podcasts. I'm your producer, David Gustina. Thanks for listening.